All right, uh, Psalm chapter 117. Uh, I'll say verses 1 and 2, but that is the entire chapter of Psalm 117. Uh, I, I was surprised to find out that that was the whole chapter. Uh, my wife and I, I think it was my family, were doing a, a, a family devotional time, and I saw this verse and I was like, oh man, that's the next verse I want to preach on. Uh, and then Josh called me the next day and said, hey, I may need you to preach tomorrow. <laughs> so I said, perfect. Then I know the verse I want to go to, and when I open it up, I realize that that is the whole chapter. I thought that was uh, quite interesting. Psalm 117, beginning in verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Church, praise the Lord indeed. Without his ever-enduring faithfulness, we sinners would have no hope. Without his steadfast love, we would have no joy in our hope. God is far more gracious to us than we ever could or will deserve. And his grace toward us is greater than we can fully comprehend. In regards to my preparation for this psalm, I truly enjoyed reading Charles Spurgeon's book, uh, The Treasury of David. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite preachers, and his Treasury of David series, going through the Psalms, has been a great blessing. Uh, If you're looking for some summer reading, I would definitely encourage you to pick that up. Uh, In light of that, I have a a few, uh, well, I have a long quote from Spurgeon uh, in the beginning of his writing on the Psalm, and then I'll Also, do some summary stuff from him in each one of my points this morning. Spurgeon says in his Treasury of David, This psalm, which is very little in its letter, is exceedingly large in its spirit. For bursting beyond all bounds of race or nationality, it calls upon all mankind to praise the name of the Lord. In all probability, it was frequently used as a brief hymn, suitable for almost every occasion, and especially when the time for worship was short. Perhaps it was also sung at the commencement or at the close of other psalms, just as we, referring to his church, now use the doxology. It would have served either to open a service or to conclude it. It is both short and sweet. The same divine spirit which expatiates, I I can't pronounce that one, but writes at length, is the, what that word means, in the 119th Psalm, here condenses his utterances into two short verses, but yet the same infinite fullness is present and perceptible. It may be worth noting that this is at once the shortest chapter of the Scriptures and the central portion of the whole Bible. The main outline that I... Um, wanted to teach this morning as I studied this psalm is actually very close to the one that Spurgeon himself gives at the end of his chapter on this particular psalm in a section that he calls Hints to Preachers. Uh, Because of that, I I wanted to share his sort of summary statement at the end of each of my points uh, so that you can see the connection there. There are three main points that I want to draw from the text this morning and, and have you consider as we dig in. Uh, My first point this morning is this overview of the psalm. Very short psalm, so it'll be kind of a short overview, but it's really helpful to get a a better grasp of the next two points. 
On my second point, I want to focus in on God's merciful kindness or steadfast love. And then on my third point, I want us to see the beauty of God's faithfulness, his truth. So again, we'll do point one, an overview of the Psalms, of the Psalm. See, I did it. Point two, I want to focus in on God's merciful kindness or steadfast love. And then point three, I want to end with God's faithfulness. So point one, an overview of the Psalm. The passage right away causes us to have to consider the context of the psalm. When the psalm was written, uh, it was written for and by the Jews under the nation of Israel. And they had a very misguided view that God was only and solely their God. They knew that God was the only God, but they also believed that God was only for them as a nation. Up until this point, many years after, God had chosen the nation of Israel as a particular nation for himself. He showed Israel favor and made various covenants with them. This was done, however, to point to a greater truth. Many, if not most, did not understand the greater purpose until Jesus came in the flesh. Though this nation was a a chosen nation, God did show it favor. God's purpose in this was a temporary choosing of a nation to point to a greater and better covenant of a people that God rescues from their sin. God's eternal covenant of redemption saves all of his chosen people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That includes the nation of Israel. It's unfortunate that the Jews missed this truth, even though they would have sang this psalm regularly, right? How many times would you sing this and not ask yourself, why is it all the nations if if God is just about us? Jesus, in his earthly ministry, begins revealing this truth to us first by declaring that all who would believe in him would be saved. In even greater clarity, Jesus says in John chapter 10, while uh, teaching about himself being the good shepherd, uh, teaching that he would lay down his life for the sheep, in verse 16 he says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I, Jesus, must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This truth culminates in Christ's earthly ministry when he gives his final command to his apostles to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that he has taught them and having them baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Even though many of the Jews at this time missed the radical truth that God would have a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we on uh, this side of redemptive history have a much clearer view. We see this truth unpacked all throughout the New Testament. God uses Paul in his letter to the Romans to unpack this truth in great detail. Uh, Much of this reality is found beginning in Romans 9 and then on through the end of the book of Romans. In fact, Paul quotes this very psalm in Romans chapter 15 as a way of showing the believers that the gospel is for all tribes and peoples as God applies it to all of his elect. Romans 15, 8 through 11. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles 
might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Something to note that may be helpful for your personal study, when the New Testament writers quote an Old Testament passage and they apply it to something specific, you should see this as the grace of God to give us his very own interpretation and purpose for what he has earlier revealed in his word. Many times God's revelation to us in his word has applications in history, but also points to a future or greater reality that can get missed. This is not always the case. However, we must use scripture to interpret scripture. So when God gives you a further understanding of something in the Old Testament through the apostles and their writings in the New Testament, that is a sweet gift. It's really neat to see God do that. Uh, We see here in Romans God's unpacking of this very psalm to declare that it was pointing to the Messiah's reach and to God's eternal purpose in salvation to the Gentiles. For clarity's sake, that the Gentiles can be understood here as any nation that was not Israel. It's being used in a very broad sense. There was the nation of Israel, there was everybody else, everybody else is being called Gentiles here. Uh, Paul is not giving you all of the details of Greek or whatever other ethnicity was there at the time. He's just using Gentiles in a general term. So as our psalm states, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Don't miss this, church. This is good news for us today. I am not personally aware of any of you that have Jewish ancestry. Surely some of you may. Um, But many, if not most of us, do not. If God had only been about the nation of Israel, then the rest of us here would still be without hope, dead in our sin. Instead, what the scripture shows us is that God chose Israel in order to bless the nations through Christ who would come from the line of Abraham. Paul makes this clear in Romans and in Galatians. Therefore, see this full circle, church. All the nations should praise God because he is the only God of mankind to be praised and because he makes an eternal covenant to rescue his people and he seals it in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord, all the nations. Extol him, all peoples. Praise God indeed, church. We who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ will praise God for all eternity with a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It will be glorious, church. Can you imagine the voices, the the unique differences, the way God created all of us singing together as one, praising the Lord eternally? This people will praise God because of God's steadfast love. Love because of his great mercy and through God's enduring faithfulness to rescue us from our sin, to send God the Son to take on a human nature and fulfill God's righteous requirements so that in his life, death, and resurrection, he could be the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, the sins of a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. 
see in this church that there is one God. All the nations are called to worship Yahweh. There is no other God. All the nations are to praise God. This is, uh, there is a general call here in this song that all nations will worship the one true God together. There is one people of God. God's elect are all brought into one family by the triune God's action in salvation. You see, God the Father elects his people from every tribe and tongue and nation before time began, before they even existed. God the Father sends God the Son to purchase or redeem this people. God the Son takes on a human nature to enter into humanity, to intercede on behalf of God's elect. And through his human life, death, and resurrection, Jesus secures salvation for the elect chosen by God the Father. And finally, God, the Holy Spirit, is sent by God the Father and God the Son to give new life and saving faith to these elect that he has chosen. See the triune God saving a people unto himself as a covenant made by God before the foundation of the world. In this, God brings those of us whom he graciously saves into one eternal family. As Spurgeon says in his summary of this portion of the psalm, he says we have the same God, the same worship, and the same reason. Praise God indeed. It is an earnest prayer of mine, church, that we will continue as we have to grow in our desire and our joy of praising the Lord. Let us never tire of praising our good God. When we praise him, may we end with repetition. It's it's never enough. So we say, praise him, praise him, and praise him again until we come back to repeat ourselves once more, right? Psalm 147 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. This brings me to our second point of focus this morning. Point two, God's merciful kindness or steadfast love. Depending on the version of Bible that you use, these two terms are interchangeable. Uh, What I mean by version is if you are using the ESV, then you see the passage as I've already read it. Uh, If you are using the King James Version or the NASB, it, it reads a little differently. And this is due to the meaning of the Hebrew word, here, which is the original language of this text in the Psalms, right? In the Psalm. I want to assure you here that either translation is acceptable and it meets the same purpose. Let's see the passage from another version from the NASB. Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, all the nations. Sing his praises, all peoples. For his mercy toward us is great, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Now here at Disciples Church, we primarily teach from the ESV. We, we have the ESV Bibles in the back for you to use if you, if you don't have one. Um, the ESV passage uses the terms steadfast love in place of great mercy, and it uses faithfulness in place of truth. When we see this, we definitely want to consider the context, right? We need to look at it and go, okay, why is that different? We, we don't need to be afraid of that, church, but we should ask, okay, why? Why is that different? It is God's steadfast love that brings his great mercy to us whom he has saved. 
God expresses his great love to us by extending his great mercy to us. When we consider either interpretation, we must see that both are proper and fitting with the original Hebrew word, and both give us great reason to praise him. God's mercy and love are inseparable. They work hand in hand. The Hebrew word translated here in the passage is literally translated loving kindness. It is common in various uh, versions to use the term merciful kindness, loving kindness, etc. So the passage says that this loving kindness or this great merciful kindness was great. (laughs) The term great here doesn't mean like great in that it's a really good thing, though it most certainly means that it's a good thing. But it's unpacking something bigger. It means great in its scope, who it's going to be applied to, and great in its power. It is uh, efficacious or effectious, right? When, when God sends his mercy, it achieves what God aims for it to achieve. It has great power and great scope. God in his steadfast love has shown his great mercy to all whom he has saved from their sin. I hope you can see why these terms are interchangeable in this passage. We, all peoples and nations, should praise God for his steadfast love, his merciful kindness, his great mercy and love. Church, why is God's steadfast love or his merciful kindness good? Because we are great sinners. We would have no hope of joy if all we knew was that because of our sin, all that awaits us is eternal death. Apart from faith in Christ, this is what awaits sinful men. We would have no hope because the law of God was given to show us how great of sinners we are. It was not given to save us. It was never given so that we could obey it Uh, perfectly somehow and force God's hand, so to speak, into giving us something for obedience. That was never its purpose. Scripture clearly declares that man cannot put God into man's debt. What we also know from Scripture is that we could never obey perfectly. If we failed in one part, we would be guilty of failing in all of the law of God. So if this were the case, we would have zero reason for joy or hope. All we would have awaiting us is death and suffering, and rightly so, because of our sin. Think about this, Christian. Even after salvation, we remain in a daily battle with sin. As we progress in our sanctification, we grow in our ability to put sin to death, but we also grow in our ever more aware of the depth of our sin. How many times have you tried, Christian, and failed to put a particular sin to death? I hope it's daily, and I mean that in the sense that I hope you are daily trying to put your sin to death. Not that you're failing daily. (laughs) I hope you're daily putting forth the effort to fight against sin. And we know that according to 1 John, we will still sin. Anyone who says they do not sin is a liar, and the truth is not in them. To be clear, we are no longer enslaved to sin, as the unbeliever is. We can and do put various sins to death, not returning to them by the grace of God. 
But until we are glorified at the resurrection, we will always have to wage this war. So if that's your experience after salvation, then what joy would you possibly have if God were not merciful to save us according to his finished work? If you could be saved, but to remain saved, you had to meet some standard of perfection or obedience, we would still be hopeless, right? We would still fail. See clearly, church, God's mercy in salvation is greatly shown in the fact that you and I did nothing to earn it, and we do nothing to keep it. Salvation is of the Lord. We could not do anything when we were dead in our sin. Prior to salvation, all you can do is sin. It is the only thing that you desire. Even the good things you do according to the world's standards are done for the wrong reasons, and therefore God declares them to be sinful. Now the reason I bring up a a joyful hope is that the love of God brings us great joy. Consider this illustration. The false god of Islam is very similar to this. In their false religion, their god could decide to save you or not, depending on his mood, when your judgment comes. So their obedience is a hopeful to appease obedience, And even in their obedience, they could be rejected at their judgment. Can you imagine what that must feel like? To have a genuine belief that you owe your God obedience, and yet even if you were to obey, you could still decide to say no thanks. You're out. There's no joy in that. That That's not good news, church. That is not the gospel of our Lord. The idea of striving as hard as you can all your life to earn a favor that could be denied depending on the mood of your supposed God is not good news. They desperately need the gospel and the God of the gospel, as does all of fallen mankind. Thankfully, this is not how God works. God's love and mercy is intricately woven together And it is an attribute of God that brings us great joy. Praise God, church, for his steadfast love and merciful kindness. They go hand in hand. Praise God he does not just save us and then leave it there. No, he loves us with a great love and perfectly so. Our joyful hope is not simply a hope in eternal life for the sake of longevity, but it is eternal life with God, who loves us, and therefore whom we love. It is eternal life with the treasure of our heart. And that would not happen if God was not loving. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. I hope this is bringing all the pieces together for you. Why do we praise God for his merciful kindness and his steadfast love? Because we were great sinners and in desperate need for salvation. Not just a salvation from God's wrath for sin, though most certainly that is part of it, but a salvation that brought reconciliation, bringing the creature back to the Creator in a right relationship of love. God created us as His image bearers. 
In so doing, he created us as creatures who need love. Not that God is in need of something. He has always had an eternal love between the triune God. And so we love him because he first loved us and he did so steadfastly. He did not waver. At the cost that it would be for him to save his people, he did not flinch or turn away. Steadfast love. He shows us great merciful kindness in this. Well, why does the the kindness part matter? Well, consider your frame. The frailness of our being. Our weakness as creatures and as fallen man. We need great tenderness, great kindness, right? God is not kind because we require it in the sense that our frailness doesn't force God to be something He wasn't already. Rather, God is kind and tender toward us because He knows our frailness and He loves us despite our shortcomings. What is man that you are mindful of him? God is tender towards those He has a steadfast love for. God is tender, kind to those that he has mercifully saved from their sin. A bruised reed he will not crush. And so we praise God for his tenderness, his steadfast love, his merciful kindness. Lastly, why is steadfast love and merciful kindness so praiseworthy? Obviously, I've given some examples here, but we'll end this point here. Because our fears can only be removed by God through these means. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. It is in this steadfast love and truth that God promises or covenants to save a people to himself. And in so doing, God always keeps His promise. God's steadfast love and merciful kindness are a part of His nature, and they are expressed or placed upon His elect. This is why we no longer fear our shortcomings, because God has no shortcomings. And if He has said He will do a thing, it is as good as done. God cannot deny Himself. Therefore, when he places his loving kindness upon his elect, when through his tender mercifulness he graciously saves us from our sin and gives us saving faith, we can know with absolute certainty, even in our failures, that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Church, if that's not praiseworthy, I don't know what is. If your salvation were dependent upon you in any way, you would have zero cause for hope. You would only be left with the fear of messing it up as we often do even in simple little things. If God did not first love us, we would have no joy. These things are clearly connected. Praise God that salvation belongs to the Lord. Praise God, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, Spurgeon summarized this point this way. In God's kindness, there is mercy, because our sin deserves the reverse of kindness. Our weakness requires great tenderness, and our fears can only be so removed. 
Which brings me to my last point, point three, God's faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Christian, let me say it this way. How many of you Christians have had dark seasons or perhaps even just dark days? How many times in those dark moments have you been worried about your salvation? How many of us have had to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief? Church, God does not error. If he has granted you faith, though you experience a lifetime of dark days, he will indeed save you. In those days, in those struggles, if at all possible, remind yourself that God cannot deny himself and he is faithful even when we are faithless. What a great blessing, church. Psalm 117, 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, all the nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. God's faithfulness and truth never change. As I said earlier, this means that God's promises are as good as him actually having carried out the promise and seeing it fulfilled. Church, if God declares that he will do such a thing, it is as good as done. His saying is his doing, one and the same. When we consider the differences between the versions of Scripture and we look at the words truth and faithfulness, we can again see a bond or a connection in the meanings. God is truth. Jesus declared to be the way, the truth, and the life. What that means is when God declares something, it is always true. Thus, when he promises to do something, he cannot deny himself and fail to carry out that promise, or he would be untruthful or unfaithful. This relates to God's word as truth, and it relates the words truth and faithfulness together. We know through his revelation to us in his word that not only is his word, the scripture's truth, but he himself is truth. This reminds us that his faithfulness to do what he says he will do is certain. He cannot lie. There is no untruth in him. There is no chance that God will not accomplish what he has revealed to us that he intends to accomplish. There's no chance that God's promises will not be kept because he might become unfaithful or untrue. No, he is always faithful and always true. There is no chance that God's word will not accomplish what he has sent it out to do because his word is truth, and he is faithful to fulfill it as he has declared. The Hebrew word here is translated as truth that endures. Perhaps you could define that as faithful, enduring truth, right? And perhaps that's helpful to know when you consider it being translated as faithfulness in the ESV versus truth in the NASB. This faithfulness and truth endure forever. There will never come a time when God's truth and his faithfulness to his truth ever fades. There will never come a time when God's truth ends. 
or his faithfulness lacks or falls short. It is forever enduring, church. That's what the psalm says. And again, this reminds us that in our dark nights or dark seasons, we can rest assured, whether we see it or not, that God will keep his word and it will always be true forever. How many times in a fallen world does this reality bring hope to our lives, church? Praise God for his truth. We are not left to our best guesses or our hopefulness of being correct, wondering what God may want us to do or require of us. How do we please him? How do we follow him? Rather, in God's mercy, he has revealed himself to us in his word, in the scriptures. And it is truth. It is faithful truth that never changes or sways. In our world, faithfulness to truth is scarcely seen around us. Every day, people will contradict themselves daily in the things that they proclaim. This is to be expected in a fallen world. A world that denies God is left with absurdity. In our fallen world, many people have adopted a uh, absurd view that truth is relative. Well, how hopeless is that? How unpraiseworthy would that kind of reality be? It's truly an absurd thing to say. To say that truth is relative is to make an absolute truth statement, which could not happen if truth was relative. You tracking with me? And this is why so many are unfaithful to truth and even hate truth, because it cannot change to their ever-changing desires or whims. Real truth is true at all times, in all places, period. Truth is not relative. God and his word are truth. Now this truth, or God's faithfulness that the psalm passage is speaking to, endures forever. And so you've got to see there's even deeper meaning when we consider the entire context of this passage. This psalm was first given to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. But the psalm begins with, Praise the Lord, all nations. So when we see God's steadfast love, his merciful kindness, his enduring truth and faithfulness, we must consider how and to whom was God faithful. Up until the time of the writing of the psalm and for many years after it, most of the nation of Israel believed that God was only for them. However, what we see in Scripture is that God was using this, this nation to point to a greater, more permanent covenant not made between God and man, but within the triune Godhead for man. And what we see in Scripture is that this nation is a greater people, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and for clarity's sake, most certainly involving many from the nation of Israel, right? Again, praise God for this church. Without this, we would be hopeless. All of you who are not of Jewish descent, or I don't remember how to say that properly, but don't have any of that nationality in your family line, would have no hope if God was not for a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Galatians three fifteen and 16. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promise of God to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, was to make many nations out of him, as much as the sand on the sea. It was a promise given to his offspring, namely Christ Jesus. God's eternal plan of redemption was to make a people for himself through the line of Abraham by the incarnation of Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary. Through the finished work of Jesus, a people group made from every tribe and tongue and nation is reconciled to God through faith that he grants us. So when we sing this psalm, when we read it or study it, We must remember that even thousands of years ago, God was talking about all of this. He was talking about His people. He was telling us to sing Him praises for His steadfast love, His enduring truth, and His faithfulness. All of those whom God would graciously save His elect. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this passage from 1 Peter, we see the faithfulness of God brought about in time. Our psalm was written thousands of years before Peter wrote this. So many people for all those years believed wrongly that God was only for the nation of Israel. But God shows us in his word that this was not so. God was for his chosen beloved from before the foundations of the world, church. When we read this psalm and we think about the call for the nations and the peoples to praise him, we must see that we thousands of years separated and a different people group entirely than this one given in the psalm or this one that was given the psalm we praise him for his steadfast love and great mercy we praise him for his enduring truth and faithfulness we do it because he has loved us first if god has granted you faith in him then this psalm is for you to praise him Christian, think about how amazing the chorus of nations will be on that day. I know I said this earlier, but but imagine that. All the voices, all the hearts, all of those who were utterly desperate and dead in their sin in need of a Savior, saved by God's steadfast love and great mercy, singing together. When the church is singing praise on a Sunday morning, we can't hear all of that, but the Lord does. What a sweet glimpse of eternity for us. This all is made possible by God and his steadfast love, his enduring faithfulness and truth, his great mercy. This is seen in how the triune God made an eternal covenant among the three persons of the triune God. This covenant was made by God within the three persons of God, and it is absolutely certain to be carried out and brought to fruition, because God cannot lie nor deny himself. 
This should be so comforting to us whom God has given saving faith. It should be a warm blanket of sorts for your soul, church, no matter the circumstances in our fallen world. Whether the Lord sustains our nation or not, whether He sustains our individual families or our lives or not, He is faithful. His truth endures. He will accomplish all His holy will, and we who have been saved by His eternal covenant will praise Him forever. Spurgeon summarizes this section like this. In His attribute, He is always faithful. In His revelation, always infallible. In His action, always according to promise. Really enjoy Spurgeon. So in conclusion... God, who created all things, who upholds all things, who knows all things, even knowing you and I better than we know ourselves, has promised good to those who love him. He hasn't promised this, then left his creation to try and figure out or uh, in what way how we are to love him, as if anyone was ever able to love him while being dead in sin. No, God has promised good to those who love him, and he has proven himself by granting repentance and faith to his elect, leading us to a knowledge of the truth and therefore a love for our good God. Again, we love because he first loved us. This very God, the only God, provided salvation to his people, to all who would believe through the costliest of sacrifices, through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus in the flesh. You see, God not only covenants to save a people, he carries out every step of salvation because mankind is not capable of salvation in any form. God covenants to save his elect. God the Son enters into humanity, taking on a human nature, and perfectly obeys all of God's righteous commands. He then, in his human nature, dies a sacrificial death on a criminal's cross to pay for the sins of all of his people. If you recall last week, this is where Christ takes your unbalanced scale, right? And he doesn't fix it and hand it back. He pays for it, and then it is gone. And he hands you his perfect, holy, righteous scale. Jesus then, on the third day, raises from the grave, proving his payment to be successful, and proving his title of firstborn, as he is the first to be resurrected with his glorified body, that he might be preeminent in all things. This assures us who are in Christ that we too will one day be resurrected with glorified bodies that do not die or decay but last forever. I know many of you volunteers after VBS are saying amen to that, right? (laughs) God the Holy Spirit is the one who then brings regeneration to man. While we are dead in sin, he gives us new life. He gives us new affections, namely a love for God, a desire to honor Him in all things. This is saving faith. And this happens at the point in time when God grants us faith in Him. This is God, only God, carrying out what He promised He would do. His faithfulness meant that the Father had to send the Son to take on a human nature. He then had to take that human nature to the cross as a sacrifice for all whom he covenanted to save, all of his elect. This meant that Jesus in the flesh, fully human, chose to submit his human will to the will of God the Father 
at great cost to himself than the torture of crucifixion. This meant that the person of God the Son, who created all things and upholds the universe by the word of his power, the person of God the Son in his divine nature held all things together while the person of God the Son in his human nature experienced the crucifixion by the very things he was holding together. There's so much depth to that, it is hard to comprehend, church. But we can see that that is a great, great cost. The weight of these realities is beyond our full understanding, and yet God saves. For those who live before Christ, God saved them through faith in the coming of the Messiah. And for those who live after Christ, God saves us through faith in Christ Jesus the same way he saved them. All because he covenanted, he promised within the persons to do this, to make a people for himself from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Church, this is faithful, merciful, enduring love, and it is truth. If you are here today and you have not turned from your sins unto the only Savior who exists, it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would be granting you faith this very day, that this day you would repent of your sins and trust your life to Him. He's your only hope. that you would join us in the choir singing praises with all the nations to God eternally for his steadfast, enduring love and truth, for his great mercy. All of this is the work of God, church. None of this was our doing, and so we praise him. I told you from the beginning of our time that I wanted to give you an overview of Psalm 117 that I wanted to focus on the great mercy and steadfast love of God and that I wanted to turn to his ever-enduring faithfulness and truth. I pray that I have done that and that God saw fit to bless you through it. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all the nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. It is such a common experience in our frailness to struggle to be faithful. Our attitude, our emotions, so many parts of what makes us human fluctuate regularly if not minute by minute we're so fickle so much of the time Lord and so we are so utterly dependent upon your faithfulness your steadfastness we know that we are utterly dependent upon you for salvation Lord there is not one man in in the history of your creation that could have saved themselves But we are also utterly dependent upon you to remind our souls of your steadfastness. In those dark nights, in those hard seasons, in this fallen world where circumstances can really be heavy, you never change. You never leave. You never forsake, Lord. Oh, may we sing your praises. I cannot wait for that day, Lord. When a people from every tribe and tongue and nation cry out with the voices you gave them in praise to you. 
all because of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.